This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you as always. You can live stream us on the internet. It's called LarryCudlowShow.com. LarryCudlowShow.com. Just go right to it. You hear us all across the country, around the world, and throughout the solar system. I'm so pleased. Our internet following around the solar system is growing by leaps and bounds. And boy, they can leap and bound without that gravity. Anyway, by the way, during the week, please join us, Fox Business Network, FBN. The name of that show is Cudlow, and it plays 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't make it at 4, you can call your favorite 9-year-old. No, no, you can text your favorite 9-year-old, who will show you how to DVR the show, and you will never miss a thing. I'm very hip to the technology revolution. You can text. Anyhow. Get all that ID stuff out of the way. Um, lots to do today, as always. Uh, I know the media is heavy into the Queen Elizabeth passing story and uh, our new King Charles III. And we'll get to that later. Uh, on the TV show, I had former uh, U.S. ambassador to the court of St. James, Woody Johnson, dear friend of mine, he was our ambassador for all four years during the Trump administration. He did one heck of a job, and he helped us out a lot, talking about one thing or another. Woody, of course, is also uh, the CEO and president of the New York Jets football team. But I want to begin uh, here with a brief talk about 9-11. Okay, tomorrow's 9-11. And it was, of course, the worst domestic attack in the history of the United States. And, of course, it was a terrorist attack on the United States. And uh, roughly 3,000 people lost their lives. And countless others were injured and damaged as they tried to rescue those who were in the building, the buildings, uh, the first responders, the cops, the fire, the emergency uh, hospital people. It was a horrific, horrific hit. At the time, I was in my home office. I lived on the Upper East Side at that point. So I was not close to the buildings. I remember watching the um, watching the first plane hit. Uh, in those days, I was working for CNBC. I had my own show on CNBC uh, with Jim Cramer, my great pal. Um, wouldn't get to the studio until later in the day. But I watched the first plane hit. Immediately in my gut and my head, I said, this is a terrorist attack. Nobody was quite sure. I remember the late Mark Haynes was uh, anchoring the morning show in those days. And then, of course, uh, what, 10 or 20 minutes later, the second plane hit the second tower. 
and it was very, very clear that it was a terrorist hit. And I remember also uh, at that point, uh, they started calling people to get various opinions. I remember they dialed me up, and I went on, and I wound up getting back to the studios up in Englewood Cliffs. It was a horrible day, and the subsequent days were horrible days. But, uh, of course, America survived, as we do. We are the greatest country in the world. We are the greatest democracy in the world. We have the greatest military force in the world. Um, I don't know that I'm going to break any new ground. Uh, I was on briefly last night. John Katsimatidis uh, ran his show about 9-11, had many uh, distinguished people who were much more central to that story than, uh, than I was. But I will say this. A couple of points here, substantive points, I hope. Of course, point number one, we must never forget 9-11. Never. I fear, I fear that while nobody's forgotten it per se, it's so far back in our collective American mind that it doesn't pop up the way it should. Those were terrible, terrible days and caused quite a bunch of reverberations and consequences. And of course, as I said earlier, lives lost and rescuers injured, damaged their health. And of course, like many, I knew a bunch of people who were lost in those buildings. But we must never forget that. We must keep our guard up, you know. That's the key point to me. Keep our guard up. And I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, look, one of the thoughts staring us right in the face today and getting worse is the open border down in the southwest, the south, and Mexico, and Texas, Arizona, California, and all those states. Now, we've talked a lot about immigration on this show, and we will talk more about immigration on this show. There are a couple of million people, undocumented, illegal people, who have come to the United States. Joe Biden has completely reversed Donald Trump's policies. There is no more remain in Mexico. They're not building a wall, although I think at one point a few weeks ago I read that Biden was going to permit some small part of the wall to be worked on. So maybe he's going to go back on that. But Trump was right. Between Remain in Mexico and uh, the wall and, of course, the health uh, issues, which still have not been resolved. But what's going on down there with the human trafficking, and, of course, the drug trafficking, fentanyl and all that. But the reality is... The Mexican drug cartels own that border. And the second reality is our authorities, customs people, uh, have um, found terrorists who are not from Mexico or Latin, Central America, Latin America. They're on terrorist lists you know, from someplace in Europe or in the Middle East. And we have to guard against that. We must guard against that. And, of course, there are many other reasons how 
kids are getting killed and drugs are penetrating the country. People get over the border. They go through some paperwork. It's supposed to show up at court later. They never do. It's catch and release, but it should be catch and deport. But my point this morning, I'm not going to go into a long riff about immigration, although I feel very strongly about it. My point this morning is that if you remember 9-11 and the terrorist actions and you remember how important the terrorist threat is, our southern border is a vital part of our defense. That's what I wish to say. I could add the northern border, too, with Canada, but I don't think that's anywhere near the problem. Nowhere's near the problem. So that's one point. A second point. We must strengthen all of our local police and related services, law enforcement services. We must. We've got to give them the revenues and the wherewithal and the capabilities and the training so that, God forbid, in another emergency situation with another attack, again, God forbid, but you know, it's one of the things we learn. You never know. We just have to give them as much help as we can. I mean, remember here in New York, you know, police, fire, health, EMS, all the first responders, all of them. Well, we've got, what is it, 5,000 fewer cops today because of the incredibly bad way they've been treated by de Blasio and now Hochul and all the rest of it. We have to defend the blue line. We have to defend the firefighters. We have to defend the EMS and so forth with more money, make sure they're up to speed and training. That is so vital. Just in, and it's not just New York, for heaven's sakes. It's all across the country. These crazy left-wing radical woke types who want to defund the cops or, you know, freeze the budget. Some of them are now turning tail, but they're not really for the cops. Defend the blue line. That's what I'm saying. That is another part of this story. Next, we must have the strongest military in the world. The strongest military in the world. Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, Coast Guard, etc. The strongest. And we are underfunding our military and our national security apparatus. We are underfunding them. In inflation-adjusted terms, they're barely breaking even. And budget deficits are a gigantic problem. I understand that. But this is a high priority. We must have always the strongest military in the world. Now, we do today, but we must keep up. Somebody said last night, this was on John Katsimatidis' show, uh, the Chinese Navy's got more ships than we do. That's not good. That's not good at all. It's not acceptable. We can't let that happen. We have the most advanced, modernized weapons system. But we must understand that defending against terrorism at home is 
partly about a strong military. And by the way, sometimes we have to go abroad and root out the terrorists ourselves. And we must be prepared for that. Some people don't agree with me on that, but I'm sorry. That is my view. George W. Bush made that very clear. George W. Bush, who is a personal friend of mine, I thought he was a much better president than some Republicans and conservatives would say today. He did what he had to do, particularly with respect to 9-11. And he said, we're going to have to go and get them. Now, I don't want prolonged invasions Right? I, I don't want to run these countries. I understand the objections to that. But our military has ways and means of fabulous first strikes to take out terrorist camps, to take out terrorist leaders. These ways and means have been used by, well, it was used, of course, by George W. Bush, was used by Barack Obama, it was used by Donald Trump, and even recently by Joe Biden. So we have to be able to do that, but we have to have the strike force to do that. That is very, very important. Now, my final point on this is that the things I've described, border control, strengthening local police and fire and first responders and strengthening the military, that costs money. And we don't have much money, do we? in our federal fisc. But here's my last point. As a supply-sider who started his government career under Ronald Reagan, I was a deputy at the Office of Management Budget Budget Office, the best way to get the resources to defend this country, the best way is to reignite economic growth. Reagan argued time and again that strength at home leads to strength abroad. Going all the way back to John F. Kennedy, who made the same case. Donald Trump made the same case. Strength at home leads to strength abroad. A strong economy at home delivers the resources necessary for a strong defense, military, and national security to give us leadership, and strength abroad. Let us not forget that. And I will be critical of the Bidens because their big government socialism has weakened us at home. They have turned a boom into a bust, and they will shortchange the military. Count on it. There's going to be a continuing resolution coming up, and then maybe sometime we'll get into the budget deal for fiscal 23. Low taxes, minimal regulations, open the energy spigots for everybody, including fossil fuels. These are just some of the ways. Let the free enterprise, free market, capitalist system work. Create incentives to work, invest, and take risks. Reward success. Do not penalize it. We are not a socialist economy. We are a capitalist economy, and the capitalist economy is the surest way to rescue poor people, middle-income folks, 
as well as the successful. And that will supply the resources to bolster the budgets for the police and the fire and the emergencies and the hospitals and the security forces and the military. It all starts at home with free market capitalism, and we are in short supply of that free enterprise approach, and we're going to have to fix that if this country is going to regain strength. I will say to you this. God bless each and every person who died on 9-11. May they rest in peace. May the Lord watch over. May the Lord watch over this country. May we never forget 9-11. And may we never forget the crucial steps that will be necessary to protect us for as long as we are here. And that's going to be, I hope, forever. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a quick break and be back in just a moment. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. I'm going to move uh, from 9-11. I'm going to continue the point, as I said earlier. We need the resources. We need the economic resources, the productive resources, which will translate ultimately into sufficient budget revenues to support our defenses against another 9-11 type attack or, for that matter, any horrific attack from from the terrorists who hate us. And... Um, I want to talk about uh, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, and the Biden administration in general. They're they're launching. Or yesterday, Yellen was in uh, where Dearborn, Michigan, called Detroit. I haven't seen uh, President Biden do this, but you know they're out on the campaign trail, talking about all their successful economic policies. And it's just utter nonsense. I mean, utter nonsense. They're calling it wonderful policies. And, uh, you know, this is part of that whole problem. Not only have they moved so far to the left and violated our free economy and our free market uh, system with strangling government regulations and the shutdown of fossil fuel, virtual shutdown of fossil fuel leasing and permitting, at a time when we mean we need far, far, far more. But um, they've been spending and taxing at a rapid rate. I mean, look, here's this background. Just step back for a minute. Uh, Bidenomics, as I'll call it, took a non-inflationary boom left to them by Donald Trump. I mean, in the first quarter of 2021... I mean, actually, in the fourth quarter of 2020, in the first quarter of 2021, the economy averaged about a 6% growth rate with less than 2% inflation. Gasoline prices were just a little bit above $2. Oil prices, I think, were, what, 60 bucks, something like that. And what they've done with it, with their high spend, 
overregulate, war against fossil fuels, excess money printing. I mean, what's happened here is we now, a little over a year later, that's all, a little over a year later, we've gotten, what are you trying to tell me in the control room? I can't. I can't hear you. Whatever you're trying to tell me, I can't hear you. I guess I have a minute left. All right. So I'll summarize this in a minute left. What we have now is an economy that declined in the first half of the year, right? An inflation rate that's jumped up to about 8%, declining real wages, right? Average working folks are losing money, even though they have jobs, blessedly, and wages are rising after inflation, wages are falling. So I got to cut off. We had a little bit of miscommunication with the control room. I'll just start with that point. We have the great Judy Shelton, fabulous economist, coming up uh, right after the break. So stick around. We'll spit it out for you and get the whole analysis why Janet Yellen is wrong and why Janet Yellen has completely blown her reputation. I'm Larry Kudlow. Judy Shelton on the other side of the break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Okay, we are back. Control room may or may not be working, but who cares about those guys? Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow, and uh, we bring back uh, my dear friend Judy Shelton, top economist, Trump advisor. She's advised a lot of Republican uh, presidents down through the years, author, columnist, and all the rest. Judy, thank you for giving us some time on a Saturday. Oh, Larry, my pleasure. It's always great to be with you. So listen, you've got two blockbuster articles here I want to talk about. Uh, could America go the way of the Soviet Union? And by the way, you're going to join us. Uh, we're having this Fox Nation special. Uh, what is it called? It's about socialism. It's called the unauthorized history of socialism. And you're going to be crucial. I want our listeners to know that this Judy Shelton we're talking to right now is the very same Judy Shelton who actually predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 80s in her book, which is really uh a remarkable forecast. So don't tell me economists always get it wrong because she got it right. But Judy, before we get to the uh, Russian story and the socialist story, the other one you had here, Biden and Powell are at odds on inflation. And I want to add to that, you know, we saw uh, Thursday and Friday, Janet Yellen uh, out on this so-called victory tour for the economy. And <laughs> I dare say there is no victory on the economy uh, with high inflation and declining real wages and uh, recessionary slumps and all the rest of it. So um, 
What do you make of this victory tour? And and by the way, and, and just let me add one thing. I don't want to monopolize, but it's just one last point. I had Kevin Hassett on the on the TV show, and Kevin, who is a sweetheart, you know Kevin, right? He's a sweetheart. Yes. He doesn't have bad words to say about anybody. He, he and I agree. We don't like to make things personal, and I think you're the same way. You can disagree on the policies, but let's not make it personal. So, like, we we all know Yellen. I know her. And her husband, George Akerlof, Nobel Prize winning come. But – Judy Sheldon, she everything um, Yellen is saying is factually incorrect, including her criticisms of the Trump tax cuts and deregulation, including her omissions about inflation, and she's ruining her reputation. Judy, she's just no ruining. Question. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. I, I felt I felt badly for her. Yep. I was I was sickened at her remarks uh, for two reasons. One. To be so partisan uh, as Treasury Secretary, I understand being a team player, but it really puts the lie to all the time she spent as a Fed chair pretending not to have a preference for for fiscal overspending and subsidies and all of these things. And maybe maybe those were her views all along, Mm -hmm. in which case she had that political bent or it could also be that now she really doesn't believe in those things, but nevertheless, she is saying things. And then I think it's a, it's a comment on her, her personal integrity. What outraged me the most was when she started talking about we had worsening inequality right. and, and lower growth under, under the Trump administration. And to me, she knows better. Um, even even Chairman Powell refers to where we were prior to March 2020 as as nirvana. It was perfect. You had 50 year record lows for minority employment and you had growth and you had productivity increases. So you had reduced inequality. And I know that she is aware of that. So I was I was sorry to see her go that route. And I also felt that she was trying to redefine supply-side economics. Hmm. And she said, this is modern supply-side economics, and our version is going to be more fair and have more equality. And first, we're going to prevent those greedy corporations and high-income individuals from not paying their fair share of taxes. And Hmm. I thought, this is Orwellian. Hmm. Her definition of supply-side economics was to increase regulations, was to increase taxation versus the the classic Reagan revolution was based on supporting the private sector and encouraging small business and entrepreneurship. The, The Reagan revolution didn't see growth as inflationary, didn't see low unemployment as inflationary. It wanted everyone to have the opportunity to be prosperous and productive in an economy that worked for everyone. You know what else, Judy, um, besides uh, her redefining, by the way, she's still out there trying to do this goofy um, 15% minimum tax on multinationals who do business overseas, which, by the way, and, and this was something we had to put up with in the last year of the Trump administration, but Mnuchin and I, um, you know, we, we stopped it. I mean, we just kept postponing it. President would never have agreed to it. Uh, but it would allow foreign countries uh, to determine the tax liability of American companies. And she's still pushing for that. You know, she's the one who said, 
there's a race to the bottom for low taxes. Okay. Yeah. And (laughs) so every country has cut their corporate tax, and she wants to raise ours. What does that mean? Right. (laughs) There, there is such a thing as as competition, and that's why we see people moving to states that are more business friendly, and that involves. Um, a more reasonable tax environment. And the last thing the U.S. should ever do in a multilateral setting is allow other countries to define our policies, especially something so important as taxation. And I think it's a real mistake. That's one thing I learned in my posting in London at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. I represented U.S. interests. Mm -hmm. And you have to confront Europe the entire European Union all the time because of the, and we saw that on energy Europe had it wrong. Well, on taxation, um, it would be a mistake to go to a higher level for the sake of trying to have some kind of global approach to taxation that reflects an attitude of letting government manage economic activity. Sure, sure. Uh, she also, by the way, Jan, has become. I mean, maybe as you were suggesting earlier, maybe she was always in the closet about this. But she's become a climate extremist, a climate policy. From day one, she was talking about the existential risk of global warming. And there is no global warming emergency. What there is is a climate policy emergency that's literally unplugging America. And she's into that stuff, too. It's crazy. Larry, how can any rational person <laughs> look at the situation in, in California right. where they are now going to be required to switch to electric cars at the same time they're being told not to plug in because it would overwhelm the grid? Mm-hmm. And, and to not be able to, to manage uh, whatever transition you think is, is reasonable is a mistake. I mean, you have, you have leaders like Elon Musk <laughs> who helped so much in bringing about um, electric vehicles, and he's the first guy to say it can't be done by immediately eliminating other sources of energy. Mm-hmm. I think that LNG is very important. Mm-hmm. We could have been helping Europe be less reliant on Russia if they had been willing to take U.S. exports of LNG and to set up the terminals to receive liquefied natural gas, but they were so bent on Nord Stream 2 Mm. that they made a big mistake. The U.S. always figures out these things, I think, for a better solution for the world, and we just need to stand up for what we know works. Yes, right on. Good for you. So anyway, let's go back to Biden and Powell at odds on inflation. Uh, Another great op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. So, right, these recent bills, now going back to March of 21 with the $2 trillion uh, relief bill, which really helped trigger the inflation. But recently, I don't know, Steve Moore and I have calculated uh, putting all this stuff together is at least $1.5 trillion of federal spending that's being legislated by the Democratic Congress signed by the president. The student loan thing may be another half a billion to a half a trillion dollars, according to Penn Warden. But in any case, I think your point is that fiscal policy is still spending like there's no tomorrow, even while monetary policy is tightening. And uh, that is not the way to go. That is not. They ought to be coordination, not conflict. That's right. That's what what I argue in that Wall Street Journal piece is that 
monetary tightening can't tame price increases in the face of a spendthrift White House and Congress. Mm. Um, You have to have sound money and sound finances. They have to go hand in hand for the economy to regain a solid footing. So we're working against ourselves. And, uh, you know, when I hear um, Federal Reserve officials very solemnly say it's our responsibility, we're responsible, so we're going to do what, what we intend to do. Um, first off, if they really are responsible, then somebody should be more accountable because they really blew it. But I don't even think they believe that. I don't think they believe they were responsible because they lock up all the money they created through quantitative easing by paying off banks and hedge funds to keep that money sitting sterile in cash accounts, risk-free at the Federal Reserve. And they've corralled it pretty well. Not too much has escaped. Mm -hmm. It's the money that came about through these cash payments from the government, subsidies, rebates, student loan forgiveness, all of that goes into the spending power of citizens. And that's what puts pressure on the prices. And I think when I, when I question what the Fed is doing sometimes in just thinking our job is to crush demand, and that's how we're going to bring it into alignment with our lower level of supply, think of a specific example. Let's say, let's say you, you own a, a fast food franchise and you have a line of credit with um, an adjustable rate, and you actively use that to manage your business. Well, now if that rate goes up, say another 75 points on top of the other two prior uh, jumps in the interest rate, you can either pass that rate on in your prices. So that's that's not cutting inflation, that's adding to Mm. consumer price increases, or you can fire people. Now, if those people who were working and producing output now go on unemployment, they're still going to have demand. They're still going to have money in their pockets because they'll collect unemployment. It's just now there's no additional output Mm. that that matches the additional spending power that they'll receive. So, again, I go back to the point that um, the only reason, in my view, the Fed can be raising is I think. We don't have price signals anymore, but let's say the traditional riskless rate is around two and a half percent. The Fed thinks that there should also be two percent inflation. I disagree. I think it should be zero. But -hmm. let's give them that. We're looking at maybe maybe the real rate of interest, the market determined rate of interest would be around four, four and a half percent. So I don't want to complain too much and root to that to that rate because I think the Fed had artificially suppressed it for so long. But at the same time, if the Fed is doing it just to crush demand, then then we see that that that's not going to be the solution to increasing supply. That's going to cause people to be fired. It's going to cause businesses to fold. And none of that helps on the inflation front. You know, Judy, it's interesting. First of all, I really agree with you uh, in this analysis. But Art Laffer was on the TV this uh, past week and You know what he said? He said all this government spending, which I think technically, uh, Judy Sheldon, uh, goes into your bank account. Technically. Well, that's it. So that that boosts the various uh, money supply measures anyway, right there. But putting that aside for a sec, Arthur said there's the income effect, which is the federal assistance you've just described, boosts demand, but also – 
the supply effect, the incentive effect, because there are no work requirements, cuts supply. They're not producing, you know, work effort, goods or services. So what you got here in terms of your uh, conflict between the Fed and the uh, administration is uh, they're increasing demand and they're cutting back on supply, whereas the Fed is trying to cut back on demand. So that it, is, it's a great point. It's, it's a, a huge part you know, of this whole conundrum. That's right. There's no you're, you're discouraging that's lower, right. That's lower right. income workers. Why yes. should they work yes. and pay taxes when for for doing nothing they can earn approximately the same income? That's it. Non taxable. You know the and lack so of you're discouraging the people who contribute the most to, to actual supply of goods and services. The lack of workfare is a killer. And that by itself is inflationary. So it's, it is. It's really it is. like and a. Phil, it's like Phil, it's Phil like Graham a three. Did a- yes, Bill Graham, you're dead right. Uh, op-ed. He's got a whole book coming out, Judy, on this. Um, he'll be on set with me on the TV show, I think, this week. But that's exactly right. The workfare piece is so important. The spending piece is bad enough, but removing the workfare piece makes it worse. And it really does. It, it, it's an incentive killer Yes. brought to you by government good intentions. All right, Judy Sheldon, hang on. You're, you you got a lot of mo this morning. It's terrific. I love hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Judy, uh, can I borrow you for another 10 minutes or so? i got to take a quick commercial break. I, I do I want, I want to talk to you about your, uh, your Russian piece, too. Uh, folks, we're with Judy Sheldon, distinguished economist and author, um, uh, Trump advisors advise many conservative Republican presidents. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to the great Judy Shelton, senior fellow at the Independent Institute, former Trump advisor, advisor to other Republican presidents. Judy, um, could America go the way of the Soviet Union? By the by, as I said, we're going to have this Fox Nation special. You're going to be a key participant because we're going to talk a lot about socialism. But um, let's see. Disturbing new poll conducted by Quinnipiac University finds that 67% of Americans are concerned that democracy in the U.S. is in danger of collapse. I mean, you talked about the financial collapse of the Soviet Union and turned out to be completely correct. Um, Are there comparisons with our, uh, I mean, our financial position is always stronger, but uh, than something like the Soviet Union, the dollar, you know, King dollars, the world uh, reserve currency, but are we in danger of losing, you know, our edge uh, in, in recent times or in the near term future? Well, I think to remain a strong nation, a leading nation in the world, your people have to have to believe in your founding vision and your basic principles and values, in addition to having a government that serves those values and principles. And you need to have um, cohesion and a, and a sense of purpose. And what I was struck by is when that poll came out and said 67% of Americans mm. are worried about the collapse of democracy in our nation, 
I thought that's that's really quite quite shocking. And the next day, the news came out about Gorbachev dying, and I remembered those years when I was concentrating on the Soviet Union and thought how shocking it would have been to Gorbachev to suggest that his country wouldn't exist in a few years and that would he, he would be overseeing its demise. And all I'm suggesting is that we need to solve our financial problems. Um, I was struck by I went back and looked at my conclusion to the book where I was suggesting the Soviet Union was going bankrupt. Mm. It's not just that they were going to turn out to be a deadbeat and not pay back all the loans they were getting from the West. They were actually no longer financially viable. So what did that mean? And I wrote that the biggest threat, this is 1989, to the continued global authority of the Soviet Union and its status as a working model of socialism is the massive budget deficit it's carrying. Mm. And I said, for years, the Kremlin has had to resort to printing money to paper over chronic revenue shortfalls. That's a recipe for inflation, no matter what the ideological tenets of the system. So I feel that the U.S. really has to get a handle on this. It's, it's not enough for Federal Reserve officials to say we won't comment on the fiscal and budget priorities of the government. That would be improper. But the model going forward is unsustainable. Mm. Well, somebody has to do something. And if, if the White House and Congress won't criticize the Fed and the Fed won't criticize them, that turns out to be mutually convenient. But it doesn't solve the problem of needing to have sound finances and sound money, because I think money is a is a moral contract between the government and the citizens. And to be removing purchasing power, expropriating purchasing power at these levels of inflation is to me um, unacceptable. And um, citizens deserve better. This is our legal tender and we need to have its meaning as a unit of account and a reliable, honest measure and a store of value made whole again so that Americans can plan their lives. If, if we live in a, a, an economy based on individual liberty and economic freedom and, and we believe in free market, um, the, the free market interaction versus government management to determine economic outcomes, we have to deliver a sound, solid monetary unit. And so inflation is a, a serious problem. And it gets to the, the moral issue. It was that the Soviet Union was going morally bankrupt. Its citizens no mm. longer believed in the vision that the government was going to deliver a wonderful life and it would be a worker's paradise. Mm. And I'm concerned that if people are likewise losing faith in our founding vision and have concerns, that's that's a bad combination. You know, and we, we need to restore on both fronts what we believe in and what we will fight for. And by fighting for it, I mean in terms of good policy from the officials we elect. You know, Judy, uh, years back, did you know Marty Anderson? Martin I Anderson, worked for Anderson. Martin Anderson. I was oh. his assistant at the Hoover Institution. Oh, that's right. First came that's back right. Washington. Stanford University. All right. Yeah. I, you know what? I knew that. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I, I knew that. That's right. Okay. Marty used to say this. Now, Marty agreed with you and me for that matter, but you know, we should have some kind of commodity backing for the dollar. 
whether it's gold or commodity indexes. But but you know what else Marty used to argue? We have to have a fiscal backing of the dollar. That's what you're saying. That um, if the dollar is, if if our fiscal policy is completely unhinged with multi-trillion dollar deficits and spiraling debt to GDP, that damages the dollar. In fact, Marty argued in favor of gold in order to balance the budget. I'm running out of time. You know what, kiddo? We'll talk about this much more. Folks, this is Judy Shelton, the brilliant Judy Shelton. Judy, please say hello to Gil for me. Uh, We're going to take a quick break and talk to the great political columnist, Charlie Hurd. We'll talk about Elizabeth. We'll talk about the elections. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Hang out with us today. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. It is great to be with you. By the way, you can live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com on the Internet, throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and uh, Fox Business News, Monday through Friday. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Where you will see on a constant basis, Mr. Charlie Hurt, the Washington Times opinion editor and a Fox News contributor whose wife forced him to shave off his goatee after his Alaskan trip. (laughs) I don't know, Charlie. You looked okay. It's okay by me. So, Charlie, thank you. No, go ahead. So I, t- I, I told my wife that you had uh, that you had agreed with her and urged me to shave it off, and so uh, she was already your biggest fan, but she's an even bigger fan now. I don't know. The thing was kind of growing on me, though, actually. Uh, but, uh, uh, but it was really growing on me. Yeah, but you know, when our wives lay the law down, that's it. So, Charlie, I'm... You know, a happy marriage and a happy life. Yeah, you just say yes, ma'am. You're right. Honeydew. Yep. That's it. Honeydew. Yes. Honeydew this. Honeydew that. And we do it. Um, So I want to talk to you about the political races. And I want to talk to you about uh, Biden and Janet Yellen's economic victory tour. But, Charlie, can we just spend a minute or two on uh, Queen Elizabeth's passing and uh, King Charles III? Um, I, I didn't cover it yesterday at all on the TV. I did Thursday. When the news broke Thursday afternoon, I got uh, my pal Woody Johnson, who was our ambassador to Britain, the court of St. James. He's a dear friend of mine. I don't know if you know Woody. He's a wonderful person. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was a great segment because he had a lot of personal stuff. I only met her once. And then Mediate attacked me <laughs> for not covering it yesterday. But I covered it when the news broke on Thursday. But anyway... Um, Everybody's talking about it. I'm looking, I'm in the studio here and I see Fox and MSNBC and CNN. They're all covering it, blah, blah, blah. What, what, what do you make of this? Because let me just add one thing. I, I happen to think that 
Queen Elizabeth was a remarkable person and a great public servant and a great monarch, and she held uh, Britain together many times. Um, she also stubbed her toe on a number of things. Um, but the real story there, w- once the pomp and circumstance of the funeral is over, is Liz Truss, the new prime minister, who is a self-described Thatcherite, wants to cut taxes and turn fossil fuels back on. I mean, Boris Johnson made a terrible hash of it, and the British economy is completely in the tank. Anyway, that's my opening. What, what do you make of this story? Well, I guess for starters, uh, for those of us who are not uh, monarch- monarchists to begin with, um, and I count myself among them, mm. um, it, you know, if there's ever a, a great case for a monarchy, uh, it was uh, Queen Elizabeth. Mm. Uh, she was a, a great person. Uh, and, and, you know, in, in a world in which it seems like nobody, especially in politics, nobody um, uh, is driven. Very few people are driven by selfless duty and sacrifice. Uh, you know, politics is filled with people who are uh, apparently trying to uh, line their own nests. Um, I, I, you know, she's a she's a tremendous figure in that regard. And so I, I, I do have a lot of respect for her and uh, and what she stood for. But obviously, the you know, she you know, there are limits to all of that and and very important limits. And, you know, and, and whether or not. Uh, King Charles is going to act on some of his crazier environmental stuff or not right. will be interesting to see. But, you know, the reason that we, that, that you and I uh, like the idea of listening to voters is because voters are actually pretty smart people. Mm-hmm. And they like the fact, they like the idea of energy independence. They like the idea of a clean environment. They love a clean environment. Um, they love, you know, the, the, the foundation of conservatism is that, that, is that you conserve. Um, and, and voters on both sides of the aisle like that stuff. And, but if you're going to chase some fairy tale that doesn't even exist uh, and, and in, the, in the process destroy people's ability to make a living and get to work and drive their children to school and uh, operate freely, then you're going to be punished by by voters. And I think that's a tremendously good thing. And I think we're seeing that, you know, and and when you have politicians who get elected by telling people, you know, pushing quote unquote zero emission vehicles on people without being honest about the fact that there is no such thing, as a zero emission vehicle, they all, you know, whether whether they're they got to be charged somewhere, and you know whether they're emitting it out of tailpipe or emitting it uh, out of a smokestack when they're charging the vehicle, uh, it's a lie, and a lot of politicians are sort of pursuing it. Um, so, uh, so I, I, my my hats off to Queen Elizabeth. I think she's a uh, been a tremendous figure, and obviously the the sort of that breadth of history where she has served has has been a fascinating history. And and to think of a, you know to be in her twenties, how many twenty year olds, twenty three year olds, or whatever she was, um, do you know of <laughs> have the selflessness and poise at twenty three 
to take over a country that is emerging from a war that no sensible person would have imagined they would have ever emerged from and uh, and then and then reigned for 70 years um, after that. It's, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary moment in time. I agree. I think that's a key point. Um, I thought her earliest days were, were frankly her best days. I mean, it's, she gave these speeches about service and um, identified with the working folks who were serving in World War II. I mean, she herself yes. was in this, uh, whatever it's called, National Auxiliary. She was a mechanic and a driver, and she pitched in, and she gave an, another good speech where she uh, kind of spoke to the young people uh, throughout Britain and, and the Commonwealth And I thought she did a pretty good job um, trying to make peace in the Commonwealth. I never understood. I mean, her family, the family itself is so screwed up in so many ways. Uh, But your bigger point, though, is Charles got to keep his yap shut because he was a left. (laughs) I mean, really, he was a left. Listen, you know, I met him several times, spoke to him several times. Very nice person. He's an intelligent guy. Um, But, you know, he was a far left climate guy. And He's not running the government. And by the by, Charlie, Liz Truss, the new prime minister, the first thing she did was remove the ban on fracking. A complete reversal of her predecessor um, who had wrecked their economy with all this climate stuff. I mean, she basically turned on Boris Johnson. First thing, very first thing she did, ended the ban on fracking. Which is and, and, brilliant. Underscoring the importance of having people in politics who are actually listening to their voters mm. and listening to their needs, and uh, and again, it's that extra. And this is you know to take it back to the United States. This is what was so extraordinary about President Trump is that you had a politician, and I would argue certainly the first politician since Ronald Reagan, who listened to the wisdom of the American people mm. and, and, and understood what it was that they, the, the, just their common sense values and what they want after, our, I, you know, and I, you know, I think both parties, certainly Democrats far more so than Republicans, but both parties had long abandoned those common sense voters Mm. who want common sense solutions. And Donald Trump came along and just said, Oh, a border. Yeah, we want a border. Oh, uh, you know, gas prices, energy. We want energy independence. Um, You know, uh, Oh, judges. Yeah. We want judges who adhere to the constitution. It's really not that complicated. And politicians in both parties, again, mainly Democrats, but but Republicans kind of got cowed into it, went along with it, especially on the judges thing, which is the mm. most amazing thing, because if you think about it, the idea of putting judges on the bench who don't believe that the Constitution says what the Constitution says mm. is kind of a mind blowing concept. Um, but but Republicans got beaten into it, into to, to sort of going along with Democrats on all this stuff. And so, you know, that having that figure and, and you and I have talked about this. Having that figure, a guy like Donald Trump, who 
who not only is listening to the American people and understanding the common sense virtues of those people, but then has the incredible guts to act on it because that's not an easy thing to do in the parlors of Washington Mm. to go in there and say, you all are all wrong. You're all crazy. You're all destroying the country. We're going to have a border. We're going to build a wall in order to ensure that we have that border. That's a pretty shocking thing. It's a hard thing. Fuck somebody who's got the guts to do that. And, and, Certainly in my lifetime, as an adult covering politics, Donald Trump is the only politician who's ever come along and done that. And, and, and I hope Liz Truss has the, the guts to, to do all that. You know more about this, obviously, than I do. But, you know, when I hear her talking about price controls for energy. No, that's not just, good. Start, that's a bad one. But she, wants yeah. to, she does want to cut the payroll tax. She is canceling a corporate income tax hike that Boris Johnson stupidly put into place. And she's uh, rolled back the uh, anti-fracking uh, stuff. But but you're right about the price controls. That's uh, not a good idea. But I basically agree with you. You know, look at in my time, Charlie, uh, Reagan was the same way as, as Trump. Reagan went against the grain on almost everything. Reagan believed... <laughs> You know, Reagan believed in the you know so-called common man, the working folks, the blue-collar guy. Reagan himself was raised that way. Um, you know, he was a, it was a different time. Uh, he had a self-effacing sense of humor and so forth. He had a different style than than my former boss Donald Trump. But you know, I I I worked for two guys who basically wanted to overturn the establishment. That's what you're saying. And listen to the voters. That's a very important uh, point, uh, Charlie. Listen to the voters. I mean, they're the ones. My favorite thing about all of these remembrances, uh, other than the the sort of historic remembrances of the queen, uh, especially in her early years, um, are the interactions that we get to see replayed on TV now (laughs) between her and Ronald Reagan and whether she's – uh, here in the United States, visiting him in California, or he is visiting her in London, and they're you know riding horses around wherever Buckingham Palace. I don't know where they were, but those images and those clips of them uh, being their marvelous, wonderful, funny, uh, self-deprecating selves. Mm. Uh, I, I I could just I could spend hours. Very cool. Just watching watching that. that. I know. Very very cool. And by the way, they were both very well dressed. <laughs> you know, they they looked like you want them to look like. All right. I mean, I kind of like that, too. All right, Charlie, we got to take a break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk with you uh, about these uh, Senate races. Uh, Charlie Crist versus Mitch McConnell. Why we should never listen to the mainstream media. Folks, we got Charlie Hurd of the Washington Times and Fox News. He's the best political columnist in the country for my money. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm here with Charlie Hurt, Washington Times opinion editor, Fox News contributor. Uh, Charlie, so I've um, interviewed on the TV uh, Blake Masters of Arizona, Herschel Walker of Georgia. Actually, I interviewed Herschel, I guess, Thursday night, or maybe it was last night. Uh, Adam Laxalt of Nevada, J.D. Vance of Ohio, and Tiffany 
Smiley of Washington and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Uh, I haven't yet interviewed Mehmet Oz, but I know him. Uh, I, I mean, I think they're all pretty good. And I think yeah. the polling numbers are very close. You know, pl- some slight pluses, some slight minuses. And for the life of me, I do not understand why Mitch McConnell is so bearish on this story. Yeah. And then I, I got to tell you, I kind of had a big smile when I saw um, Rick Scott of Florida, the head of the campaign committee, Senator Scott, blast McConnell. So what's going on here? Yeah, if, in, in fact, these races uh, in the Senate turn out to be as good for Republicans as, as my hunches, and it sounds like your hunches, mm-hmm. then Mitch McConnell has a lot to answer for. Because, you know, I, I get the idea that Mitch, the, 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 the Republican leader, you know, and this is a typical Washington game where the leader of a, in a, in a, of a party in, a, in one of the chambers tries to play a conservative game and sort of lower expectations to make it easier to exceed expectations and to, to do well. But at some point, it becomes destructive and delusional mm. when you talk them down the way uh, Mitch McConnell has seemed to talk down Republicans. There was a poll, uh, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, um, it, by Trafalgar, which, mm. of course, you know, people, if you go back over the past couple of elections in these very turbulent political times, Trafalgar has been a uh, pretty dead on, on far more so than the other major pollers, pollsters. But they they had Patty Murray up in Washington state by four points. Mm. Mm -hmm. That is a four point race in the state of Washington, which is as blue as they come. Then, then there's no reason to be bearish about that. Mm. If, If Patty Murray is up by four points in Washington, then the, then, and this is assuming, you know, accepting the fact that the Republican, the map in the Senate for Republicans this year is terrible. Mm-hmm. It's the worst map they'll they ever they, they ever face. But if if it's a four point race in Washington, then a state like Pennsylvania, which Republicans in past years have no business really playing in, that's going to be a hold. Ohio, I think, is a hold anyway. They're going to win Georgia. And then suddenly New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada are all going to be pickups for Republicans. Wisconsin will be a a comfortable hold. We're going to start. We'll be talking about races like New Hampshire. And and if you're getting into stuff like that, then you're talking about a massive, massive tidal wave Mm -hmm. in the Senate for Republicans. And the idea that Mitch McConnell isn't out there talking about the the three issues that he should be talking about every single day in the most visceral terms, as viscerally as voters care about those issues, um, then, then Republicans have a serious, serious question to ask themselves about whether or not he is worthy to run them, yep. to, to, to be their leader in the Senate. <clears throat> Listen, Joe O'Day, Republican in Colorado, <laughs> is closing in on Michael Bennett. That's plus five, plus five. That that's a horse race. And by the way, your point about Washington, I mean, you know, Patty Murray, uh, Patty Murray would have felt very comfortable as the head of the Soviet Council 
you know, in one of the <laughs> in one of the Saint Petersburg suburbs uh, during uh, during the Soviet Union days. I mean, and and in Pennsylvania, this guy John Fetterman. I mean, he's a crazy person. He's just crazy. He's nuts. Lunatic. Uh, lunatic. lunatic. Uh, you know what else, uh, Charlie? I I want to go back to Herschel Walker for a second because people were telling me he's he's not good. He's not fluent. He's not a good communicator. So I interviewed him. He was terrific and message driven and spoke beautifully, Charlie. I mean, he really. I don't know Herschel Walker, and he just did a fabulous job on the TV show, and I'm looking at this guy, and by the way, beat the hell out of this Raphael Warnock, who was a far-left, you know, one of these far-left ministers uh, who votes the Biden line every time. I mean, so that's just another example. So you think, so if all these guys win, uh, maybe Rick Scott uh, runs against Mitch for majority leader? Is that possible? Oh, I think without a doubt, I think anybody who is, you know, I think, you know, the, the thing about Mitch McConnell is that he is um, he is regarded as a brilliant tactician. And quite frankly, over the years, he has been a very strong tactician. He is, you know, nobody knows the inner workings of the Senate better than he mm-hmm. does. But he has gotten schooled pretty badly in the past by Democrats mm-hmm. at a time when he has two more Republicans. There are two more Republicans in the chamber then there are Democrats. The only way Democrats hold a majority in the Senate is that you have a socialist and an independent who take their lunches with Democrats right. at their Tuesday lunches. That's the only power. And then you have the vice president casting a tiebreaker vote. He, you know, Obviously, he doesn't run the chamber, but he ought to be doing better in the chamber yep. with those kind of numbers. Charlie Hurt. Terrific stuff. Best political columnist in the country. Charlie, we'll talk soon on the TV show. Folks, we're going to take a uh, quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to John Carney of Breitbart News, Economics, and Finance. Get a little update on all that stuff. I'm Cudlow. I think the GOP is going to do very well come November. The cavalry is coming. The cavalry is coming. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to bring in my pal John Carney, Breitbart News Economics and Finance Editor and Breitbart Business Digest co-author. John, thank you. Appreciate it very much. I can't have a radio show without checking in with you. Thanks for having me, Larry. So this is a very interesting story you got here. Uh, next week, the CPI is going to probably print its first negative month to month. I think you're right. Uh, I think largely because of gasoline prices. Um, the year to year is going to stick around eight, but you're right. But what's really even more interesting is the point you all are making that lower oil and gas prices will not bring down food prices. And I would just add to that, you know, uh, John, when I look at the um, the Cleveland Fed inflation trackers, uh, I don't know if you look at that, but it's a very interesting thing they've got going. They look at the median CPI, you know, which is the exact middle of the index, and that's gone from 2% to 6.5% over the past 12 months. And then they have another one, John Carney, um, 
the so-called 16% trimmed mean, which means they knock out the 8% highest prices and knock out the 8% lowest prices. In other words, they take out the outliers. That thing's gone from 2% a year ago, July 21, to 7% by July 22. Uh, and, you know, this is while uh, these uh, energy prices have eased down. And the point is that inflation has spread. It's become more widespread. It's not just about oil. So let's talk about this. And let's talk about um, uh, why the lower oil and gas prices won't impact uh, lower food prices. Sure. I'll start with the, the lower oil and gas prices because they're the things that have brought down. They're why we got a zero print for the July number why when we get a negative print for the August number, which is most likely going to happen when that gets released next week, that's being brought down by the price of gasoline. Gasoline is very much its own thing. It's controlled by both you know, the production we do here in the United States, which has been relatively low, frankly, ever since the Biden administration took over, and uh, what OPEC does, and also what Russia does. Obviously, Russia is no longer controlling the price of what of what we're doing over here uh, because we have sanctions against Russian oil coming to the U.S. But so gasoline prices are its own thing, and they don't affect the prices of other things as much as people think they do. A lot of people say, well, you know, you got to ship stuff, particularly food. They, they talk about shipping food. Um, so maybe that influences the price of uh, gasoline, of the price, maybe gasoline influences the price of food that way. That actually doesn't hold up in any real studies there have been about the way prices work. Mm. In fact, what controls the prices, prices actually tend to work the other way. It's not how much you spend to make something that controls what the price will be. It's how much you can sell it for. It's, it's supply and demand. Mm -hmm. So, And it actually works the other way. What you're willing to spend to make something depends on what you'll get when you can sell it. You could build a bicycle out of solid gold, Larry, but the thing would be so heavy nobody could, could ride it. <laughs> and so unless somebody was buying it as a piece of art, it doesn't matter that it costs you a million bucks mm. to build the golden bicycle. You'll never sell it to a bike rider for a million bucks. Mm. Uh, he, so and so that's, that's my greatest example I use to tell people it's not the cost of making something that controls the price. It's the price that actually backwards controls the cost of making stuff. So that's why gasoline doesn't push up prices, the, the price of food very much when it goes up, and it's not going to bring down the price of food, even though gasoline has been falling now for 90 days in a row. Yeah, you know, it's the old Wall Street saw. Uh, an asset is worth uh, is only worth what somebody's going to pay for it. That's right. <laughs> and that's what you're saying. So it's a good point. I mean, I think input costs do matter but you're Over right the long term yeah somebody's got to pay for it you're exactly right um on the um so food price is a big problem and even as uh we've seen this so i mean empirically you are correct because uh the cpi has eased down slightly uh the last couple of months because of cheaper gas um the uh monthly numbers have been much lower but not for food so groceries, I mean, that's a big issue. I'm looking at my at my economic charts here. Hold on. I'm going to come up with the number because what attracted me to your article is that 
You are dead on correct. Now, let me get my CPI out. Come on, Larry, get your CPI out for the month of July. Here we go. Okay, so all items were flat, principally because of a 5% drop in energy prices. But, John Carney, food in July was up 1.1%. So that's like 14% at an annual rate. And the last three months, food is up 13.9% at an annual rate. And the last 12 months, up 109 So you're quite right. I mean, the data show that uh, regardless of the easing down in energy, food prices, if anything, are speeding up. That's right. We, we saw a – food prices have been May, June, July. Food prices went up 1% month after month. Yep. Now that's one percent. When I, you know, you say that to people, they don't think that's that much. But again, when you get one percent, and if you had one percent once in a year, that wouldn't be that bad. But when you get one percent month after month, as you were saying, it ends up stacking up. So this is a very high annual rate compared with a year ago. We're up close to eleven percent. That's a huge jump in people's groceries and grocery bills are some of the most salient bills. They actually control. Uh, how people think about the economy and how they think about inflation and how inflation expectations develop a lot more than most other prices. The price of a new car matters a lot to people. Don't get me wrong, but you you don't buy a new car every week. Mm-hmm. You go to the grocery store every week. And so people, and the prices are also super transparent. You walk down the aisle and you see, even for stuff you're not buying, you see the prices of it. That's a lot different than stuff like furniture. You know, a lot of the other stuff that makes up CPI, either it doesn't have that transparency of price or that frequency of purchasing. And so uh, food matters a lot. That's why you, you named a bunch of uh, very good, uh, what I'll call measures of underlying inflation, mm-hmm. median inflation, mm-hmm. very good. The mm-hmm. trimmed mean inflation, I think is very good. My favorite right now, is something I call food core inflation, Mm -hmm. which is core CPI, which the way the Fed looks at it takes out automatically all fuel prices, and then it takes out all food prices. What I do when I think about food core is I add food back in. They used to take out food because food prices were very volatile, just like gasoline back in the 70s when they came up with the concept of core Inflation. Food prices are no longer volatile. What we're seeing now is a trend that goes up, but it doesn't bounce up and down a lot. So food, bringing food back in, and there's a lot of reasons I can explain why food isn't as volatile as it used to be. Part of it is globalization. We buy food from all over the place. Another part is nationalization. Food gets shipped all over the country because we have better refrigeration. So food needs to be added back into core. And when you look at it that way, inflation has not come down. And in fact, has is has been accelerating it accelerated definitely from june to july and i worry that it may be up a lot and this is again i think it reveals the direction inflation is going and i think the fed will pay a lot of attention to this they know that core that core is a little deceptive headline is a little deceptive it's these measures like median cpi that tell you where the inflationary pressures are in the economy you know john carney who agrees with you the great Art Laffer. He said this to me. That is fantastic to know. No, I know, because he's such an influential, brilliant guy. Um, Art says virtually the same thing. Art says 
Watch food prices as a leading indicator of overall inflation. Isn't that fascinating? That is terrific. One of the things, and I may have actually heard this originally from Art Laffer, but uh, that I like to point out in the Breitbart Business Digest newsletter is that I really like to tell people that when you lower the price of one good, like gasoline, in an inflationary environment, it doesn't lower it doesn't take out inflationary pressure. In fact, a lot of times what you see is the inflationary pressure spreads to other things. That's right. So you need to lower the inflationary uh, atmosphere altogether. If you just squeeze it in one part, it pops up somewhere else. And so I actually think we're going to see more inflation in other consumer goods, particularly food, because the price of gasoline went down, it leaves more money in people's pockets. They spend more of it through the economy. Yeah, terrific stuff. By the way, John Carney, the the whole Breitbart News uh, business digest and economics and finance, you guys are doing a great job, you and Alex Marlowe and whoever else is in there. Thank uh, you very much. No. Everybody can go and subscribe. It's free. Go to the website, click on the upper right corner, newsletters, and they can subscribe, get it in their email box every day. Yeah, it's a must read for me. And we appreciate your helping on radio and the TV. We'll get you back on the TV this week. Uh, you're doing Everybody. a great job. All right, buddy. Thank you, uh, John Carney. Folks, I'm Larry Cutler. We're going to take a quick break. Other side of the break, former chief uh, energy department scientist Paul Dabar is going to tell us why we're helping China with our insane climate policies. I'm Larry Kudlow. Quick break. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Paul Dabar, former undersecretary for science chief scientist and uh, for the U.S. Department of Energy under the Trump administration. Uh, Paul, welcome back. So you've got, um, there's two things I want to talk to you about. Your op-ed in the journal, How the Chinese Communist Party Steals U.S. Technology. And then the second one, Paul, uh, which is a little sexier, I think, that Joe Biden's, I'm calling it Joe Biden's battery economy. Right, the electric vehicles and the battery. Of course, you're not allowed to charge your batteries anymore because there's no electricity in California. But um, that battery economy requires minerals, lithium, nickel, whatever. Uh, and guess who has it? China. So we are playing into China's hands. China is not our friend. They are our enemy. They are our adversary. And they are bad actors on the world stage, and they're a communist party. So we got two things going here, right? The Chinese communists have infiltrated the U.S. government's research and innovation efforts. And then uh, Biden's battery economy is playing right into Chinese hands. So what do you make of it, Paul Dabar? Well, Larry, thanks again for, uh, for having me on. Uh, on the first topic, um, you know, clearly what had happened, and I, uh, I think uh, when we were both down in Washington trying to make a difference on pivoting, but, uh, you know, many years back, uh, uh, kind of in the, the mid-2000s, the Chinese uh, took uh, what I would call historical collaboration between scientists at labs and universities that normally happens between the U.S. and, you know, Canada and France and, you know, all over the world. Uh, but they, 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 their interaction with U.S. scientists, they ended up started using it as a, a, a spy recruiting uh, um, vector. 
And uh, they hired uh, people uh, at U.S. national labs, in, inside the U.S. government, at, at universities, and even at private companies where they were, you know, they had two jobs. They worked for a lab or they worked for a big tech company, and they were getting a second check from the Chinese Communist Party uh, that people didn't know they were getting to pass along information and, and to recruit new, effectively, spies. How stupid can we be? How could we not have known that? Honestly, yeah. how could we not have known that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a slow creep where, you know, call it 20 years ago, this was not part of the Chinese plan. They decided to do it and they slowly, you know, decided to try to recruit people. It, they even tried it with me before I was in government. Uh, they even approached me with kind of slow creeping proposals of which, I did not accept any of, and it wasn't until I was in government and you know we were all briefed on the on the classified side how pervasive it was. But it was because the Chinese took the Chinese changed their tactics, and then they ended up. There are a lot of people who are individual scientists who you know had never read a spy book or you know hadn't been briefed on these things as they were changing, and then government policy did when they started catching it. They didn't immediately start putting into disclosure and conflict of interest policies to stop it. But that was something that we were able to start doing about four years ago. Has Biden? Uh, I know there have been some cases that have surfaced publicly uh, where some of these faculty members have been busted. But have we what have we done, Paul Dabar? Have we have we have we passed a law or or what? Because these universities Okay, I mean, I don't trust anything. These big universities, they're all so woke nowadays that I don't really trust them. So I'm looking for federal laws, I think. But what is what's going on here? I mean, we have to keep the Chinese communists out, period. Full stop. That's it. They want to steal our technology, which is our family jewels. We have a big advantage over them. Right. Um, You know, forced technology transfer is one of the big issues in the trade area. They were stealing our intellectual property. So now they're trying to infiltrate our research universities. And I don't have any confidence in our research universities. Yeah, so there needs to be a lot more legislation. Uh, There's been little bits and pieces and a little bit more done at the uh, agency level in the executive branch. Um, I mean, you know, for the area that that I used to work with, uh, you know, Secretary Perry and Secretary Bouillette, uh, we we uh, eliminated the Talents and Talents program. Uh, mm. No one could work for the Chinese uh, and, and work for a national lab. I know that seems horribly obvious, but that wasn't restricted, uh, you know, four years ago. Um, we also uh, actually made it applicable for uh, university grants. Uh, and so at least now, at least for DOE, uh, Department of Energy, uh, if you get a grant and you, you know, you're at a university anywhere in the country getting a grant, you can't be a, a, a China thousand talents, uh, you know, Chinese uh, Communist Party taking money from them as part of their plan. Believe me, there's lots of holes on this, you know, on those policies, yeah. you know, that doesn't solve everything. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 you know, to, to your question, Larry, uh, you know, Congress has been debating this topic and they need to pass something that's applicable to whether it's the Federal Reserve or the SEC or NIH. All of them. Kick them out. Kick them out. Kick them out. Look, we can't, you know, any American that goes over there, I assume you've been over there. I went over there on the trade team. 
you know, you're followed, tailed, wiretapped. You can't make a cell phone call, all that stuff. We don't do that here, but we should. Or we should just not let them in. I don't want to let them in. Don't let them in. Yeah, I... I Stop I, these I, conferences. I, I, Why do I need conferences with China? You yeah, know? I mean, yeah. seriously. What You know what we need? We need a conference between the Biden White House and uh, oil and natural gas producers. <laughs> That's the kind of conference we need. We don't need conferences with Chinese communists. Well, well, you know, well, you know, actually, it hits, it, hits, it hits on another thing, Larry, right? That 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 we implemented, right, at DOE, uh, which was anti any interaction with what we called the four countries of risk: uh, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, required senior level sign off. Oh, any right, right. Any any visit, right? Certainly, any collaboration. So, you know, an individual scientist or researcher doesn't actually have the flexibility to go travel to China nowadays and to do an event without a senior sign-off. That's good. And, it, and, 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 and once again, not that it solves everything. And, and to your point, it's not every agency. I think the vast majority of the agencies do not have any of those uh, no requirements. And, and as you said, you know, legislation to mandate those sort of uh, limitations, uh, reviews, uh, to limit exactly what you just said, would be good policy. So, Paul, last one. Uh, and of course, we love your time. Um, give me a minute on this, uh, you know, Joe Biden's battery economy. Unfortunately, the batteries, the ingredients, most of them are made in China. Our greenies won't let us mine for the key mineral resources necessary for the batteries for electric vehicles. Even Elon Musk said we should uh, use more natural gas and so forth. But give me a minute on this. Why are we helping China? Yeah, so, I mean, right now with with internal combustion engines, uh, to a very large degree, we still produce a lot in this country. For electric vehicle technologies, especially batteries, it is mostly overseas. Now they're trying to fix that, but as of right now, the vast majority of the materials come from China and the production come from China. So, you know, the shift towards electric vehicles reduces energy security compared to where yes. we are today, so yes. to speak. Uh, and the reason why the Chinese have grabbed onto that is to a very large degree, uh, they have uh, very low labor standards, labor costs, and very low environmental standards. So uh, we're exporting, you know, people put and say you know, environmental rules, which you can debate, you know, a specific one, whether it's a good idea or not in the U.S. on a, on a specific thing. But in reality, we're, those laws are exporting all of that to China. So it's actually not helping the overall environment uh, for the world, and it's reducing energy security. And, and, and also it has performance issues compared to, you know, certain parts of internal combustion. I mean, it's just the stupidest bloody thing I've ever seen because you want batteries, okay, okay, but we don't have the stuff to make the batteries. Now, we do have it, Paul, the bar. We have it underground, but the greenies won't provide permits so we can do the mining to dig up the lithium and the nickel and whatever the hell else goes into these batteries. I don't know all there is to know about it. But you know what I'm talking about. They won't give them the permits. At the same time, 
you've got crazy places like California and Washington and God knows. I think there's 12 states now that want to ban gasoline-powered cars. So we're going to have batteries, but we can't dig for the batteries. And by the way, Paul, if you do dig for the batteries, tell me if I'm wrong, you will release carbon emissions. But wait a second, you're not allowed to release carbon emissions, so they won't let you dig for the batteries. This is crazy. This is crazy. This is crazy. Yeah, no, absolutely, Larry. Actually, as you said, the carbon emissions for the production of of electric vehicles, mostly batteries, is is actually quite a bit more than the production of internal combustion engines. (laughs) Uh, And so that's that's, uh, an important data point. I'm losing Uh, my mind. This whole subject, uh, it causes me to lose my mind. It's the stupidest bloody thing I have ever heard. Paul Dabar, thank you, my friend, former top scientist for the Energy Department in the Trump administration. What a screwed up country this is. Get rid of Biden and this climate policy stuff is ruining us. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a break. Other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. What's up with that? And what's the Fed going to do to us in the weeks and months ahead? Please stick around. We'll be back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. All right. I'm Larry Kudlow. Welcome back to the Larry Kudlow Show. First of all, you can join us during the week. Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, every day. And if you can't make it at 4, just text your favorite nine-year-old. who will teach you how to DVR the show. Point number one. Point number two, you can live stream us, LarryCudlowShow.com. Live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com. Goes all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system. By the way, our ratings on the solar system are really moving up nicely. And now we're going to do some stock market work. And we bring in my dear friend, Michelle Girard head of U.S. NatWest Markets, and Mike Ozanian, assistant managing editor for Forbes Media and co-host of the great show, Forbes' Sports Money, plays on the Yes Network. I've been watching that show. It's a good show. Now, Michelle Gerard, uh, love, love, love. I've got to, I'm <laughs> going to apologize because you know what's coming. I have to spend a moment with my friend Mike Ozanian, on the collapse of the New York Yankees. Okay, <laughs> I watch it every night. I watch really large chunks of the game. My heart is broken. I don't even know if they're going to make the playoffs. Anyway, Mike Ozanian, give us a minute on the Yankees, please. Well, I, right now, as you look at the team, Larry, as I know you have been, basically their offense is all about one guy. Yep. That guy is named Aaron Judge, yep. and who now, is, of course, is even being pitched around, you know, walks two, three times every game because nobody gets on base in front of him. Nobody's <laughs> a threat to hit behind him. Uh, you know, look, all teams have injuries, right? The Rays, who have caught up to the Yankees, almost have had a ton of injuries. I, I, I hate to say this, and I, and I think I'm dead wrong. I think when we had a chat a couple of months ago when the Yankees were – you know, 15 games in first place. I was taking the view that, you know, when these other guys even start hitting better, guys like LeMayu and so forth, you know, they're going to do even better. What actually has happened, I think, is 
we've seen the weakness in how the Yankees have been constructed, whereby there are too many guys that strike out too often. That's it. Don't get on base enough. That's it. And, and, and that's really what it's that's it. down There's to. no contact hitters. LeMahieu is hurt. LeMahieu is hurt. But they're all hitting 200. Hicks, Donaldson, both of their catchers. Uh, and I think they have a big problem going forward, too, because if Stanton is now at the point mm. where he's only going to play 50 games a year, mm. that's $35 million a year in salary. You know, that, that really works out to $70 million a year in salary. Mm. And... Uh, Looming on all of this is Mr. Judge. What does he do at the end of the season? Mm. Uh, he's a free agent. He's turned down the Yankees' first offer. He bet on himself, as they say, before the season by not signing. And he's having an MVP year, most valuable player year. He has an outside shot to win the triple crown. Yes, he does. That's as, that's a key point. He's hitting three oh four with 55 homers and whatever, 120 RBIs. He's amazing. But the rest of them are all hitting 200. They can't hit. They can't make yeah. contact. It's dry. Oh, my God. Oh, my I'm God. I'm feeling, and, and I know, Michelle, you and I, we all love analytics, <laughs> and all baseball teams use it. But I think whatever analytics the Yankees are employing, that was telling him, you know, Donaldson was a good offensive player He's and all terrible. these other guys. He's terrible. I think they need to revisit that because whatever they're putting in that formula isn't working. You know, uh, just last point. On-base percentage is very important. The batting average and the walks. And they just don't have it. They don't get nope. on base. They strand runners. But the amazing thing is Aaron Judge is hitting over 300. You're right. He could win the Triple Crown. All right. Enough of that. Uh, Michelle Gerard's best Wall Street economist and a very old and dear friend. <laughs> Michelle, uh, let's talk about the Fed just for a sec. Um, the um, uh, unconfirmed chairman of the Fed, Nick Timoreus, <laughs> who is a Wall Street Journal writer, who is a friend of mine, uh, he has told us the Fed's going to raise the target by 75 basis points. Uh, when's the meeting? Next week, is it? Or the week 21st. after? 21st. Yeah, the 21st. All yeah, right. the week after. Uh, and I'm sure they will. Beyond that, we will see. But I want to know if you agree with that. And I want to know what your outlook is. I mean, you know, inflation, you're probably going to get a negative print because of gasoline prices um, in uh, for the uh, for the. Yeah, for the August for number. August, yep. Right, for the August number. But, 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 it's all gasoline prices. Food prices are soaring. All these, you know, the Cleveland Fed median is 6.5% growth and the trimmed mean is 7% growth. So I don't think inflation is going to disappear. Maybe you disagree. Mm -hmm. And if you do, please tell us. But I'm just saying, what's your outlook for the Fed right now? Yep. Well, we had had 50 basis points in a kind of a close call. We've never been that. You know, we've always acknowledged it's 50 or 75, and it, it certainly the rhetoric and then Nick's article would would tip the scales. It seems like 75, and then and then they'll keep going. I think at the moment we, along with the markets, have a four percent uh, terminal rate, if you will. At least, you know that's what they think the stopping point is. I think it remains to be seen whether that is the stopping point. It may be where they pause and reassess, but. 
I, I agree with you that inflation is going to be more persistent. Now, Larry, you've actually had this call. You, you've been saying it's going to be 6%. The core rate's going to be 6% yeah. at the end of the year. Yeah. And, you know, we were at 4 then we were at 45 Now we're, like, close to 55 So I'm catching up to you, Larry. And, um, you know, it, it will come down, and, and things like energy will help the headline. But, you know, again, away from energy, there's really no sign of, of a material deceleration. I think any slowing is going to be slower than the Fed would like. We don't have the we don't have the inflation rate getting back to a two percent target until twenty twenty four. San Francisco Fed put out a paper, they don't have the inflation rate hitting target till twenty twenty five. So it's going to be slow. And I think for the markets the important thing here is you know the market is still looking for rate cuts next year, even though the Fed is signaling or trying to say you know, that that isn't likely to happen. Rates are likely to stay higher for longer. The the markets are still operating under this assumption that if the economy goes into recession, which we actually are forecasting, the Fed will be forced to reverse course. And I think the markets are miss, missing that. You know, this is a very different time. It's almost like a regime change, if you will, or it's a return to what, you know, I mean, the Fed is trying to learn and from the lessons of the past that make the same mistakes. And I don't think they're going to be thinking about cutting interest rates until that, you know, inflation rate is much, much closer to target. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think inflation is going to be stickier, longer. They are a long ways from 2%. I don't care what gasoline price. I mean, I'm glad gasoline prices are coming down for the sake of the American worker and fam, typical family, but it's going to be a slog. You know, Michelle, they'll take – the way I was reading uh, Jay Powell's speech, and, you know, I listened to Jim Bullard, who I think is the smartest guy, plus his uh, former research uh, – uh, assistant um, Chris Waller, uh, who with Donald Trump's backing, I appointed, I put him on the Fed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those guys are trying to tell you, they, look, they'll take the unemployment rate all the way through 6%, Michelle. Right. I mean, that's, that's the yeah. deal. They're going to, that's the deal. And they, right. it's, the market who, people in the stock market who think they're going to A, pause later this year or B, cut rates next year are out of their minds. Yeah, they're not going to do it. No, I, I again, um, I think that they want to front load the the rate hike, yes. and then I yes. think you know, again, they may pause. Don't the other thing too that we have to is is quantitative tightening. I mean, they're going to actually start to you know to sell, we think they will start to sell um, securities. So right. you're going to have a a double whammy. And then the other thing is, I mean, at best, I think they pause. But as we talked about, if inflation proves more persistent uh, through 2023, then every sort of expect maybe four percent isn't even the peak no, so no I think the no way the, very challenged the funds rate look first of all you make a great point uh they're finally going to start trimming their balance sheet look the 10 year has gone up almost 100 basis points from the low it's uh, 332 is what i have for friday but whatever uh we haven't seen the peak in market rates and we sure haven't seen the peak in the fed funds rate come on they can't do that I mean, they right. could slow them from 75s to – you know what? I could – let's go back to last spring. I stick with what I said. They should have raised the funds rate a full point every single meeting until you actually see the inflation indexes coming down rapidly. That's what they should have done because Bullard, Bullard made a point last week. He said, let's not drag this out, Right. right? 
Right. The, the sooner they get back to you know price stability, quote unquote, then the faster the economy can recover. The cavalry's coming. The Democrats are going to lose both houses. The Republicans are going to you know stop spending and they're going to start t- cutting taxes or trying to, or they won't raise them. And that'll help. And they're getting rid of these regulatory shackles around the economy. But I mean, the Fed's got work to do. The only th- other thing I want to ask you is. Michelle, don't you think Nick Timoreus should be confirmed as the Fed chairman? <laughs> I'm, I'm, he's the only straight shooter. <laughs> it's almost like a mini FOMC meeting. Like as yes. soon as that article hit, yes. it was like the markets. It was almost as if the Fed had acted. <laughs> so it's quite funny. <laughs> you know, I know him very, very well. He covered me when I was in the White House. He's a very smart guy. He's a very smart guy, and he's he look. They're leaking to him, and he puts it right out. We all know that game. Anyway, let's take a quick break. I want to get Ozanian back in here. We got to figure out what the investment strategy is and uh, what the GDP is going to look like. Uh, so we're talking to um, Michelle Gerard, uh, who's with Nat West and Mike Ozanian, Forbes Media and Sports Money. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks in the economy. We've got Michelle Gerard from NatWest Markets and Michael Zanian from Forbes Media and uh, Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. So, Michael Zanian, I don't know if you agree with what Michelle and I were saying. By the way, Michelle, uh, who was a former economist with the Federal Reserve Board in Washington and once worked. Mm-hmm. on the staff of one Cudlow back at Bear Stearns days, <laughs> and she is one smart woman. So I my- do agree with Michelle, and I have to say, I've also uh, been very fortunate to learn a lot from her over the years and listening to her and when she's appeared on your show. And she speaks so clearly. I, I really, she speaks clearly. Yeah. Have you noticed Even that? I understand. Okay, that. let's move on to the content <laughs> that I'm sure everyone would prefer to hear. Mike, what do you think this all means for the market? <laughs> That's right. There you go. She's she's the host now. Go ahead. I think, go. Uh, for me, I'm going to be very, very selective with equities. Yeah. Um, I, I don't trust the bond market right now. And to your point about Nick writing for the journal, I, I think Powell has come out and said he's not going to be talking anymore or something like that <laughs> the other day. So I think we're going to really need Nick to, to tell us a lot more going forward. Yes. Uh, but look, it's going to be a very tough market going ahead. We've seen for the overall economy, the uh, Fed flash estimate for, I think it was quarter three, just got almost cut in half, I think, from yep. over two to under two. Um, I think rising mortgage rates. Uh, are going to hurt the consumer. I think real wages are going to have a very, very tough time staying positive. So that's going to, I think, make corporate profits very challenging. And look, FactSet has come out and said the other day they're only looking for 3.7% growth year over year in quarter three. If that's accurate, that's going to be the lowest growth rate since 2000 Mm -hmm. when it was negative. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I I think you got to be very, very picky in the equity market at this time. Do you buy energy, or what? What would you buy if you were picking around? I, I look. I think one of the overlooked sectors of the American economy are the railroads, uh, oh. and I, they've become they've become e- incredibly efficient through technology huh. and and through how their generators power the trains and everything. And for my money, uh, probably the best run or, or one that. There isn't another one running any better is Union Pacific. Mm. They, they continue 
to have earnings growth. They continue to have revenue growth, uh, and they pay a nice 2.3% dividend. And th- their PE is, you know, right about at the market at 17. So I, I really uh, like that. And as an out player on all this stuff happening around the globe on inflation, I like the Australian dollar, mm. which I think has fallen a little bit the past two weeks. But uh, I think as Australia starts to ratchet up, it's tightening for fears of inflation. I think that bodes well. They also sell a lot of commodities. Mm. So I also like the Australian dollar. U.S. dollar is pretty darn strong. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. U.S. dollar is strong. And it's made up some, and not only against foreign currencies, but it's it's been strengthening against commodities. So there's yeah, that. We've seen that, yeah. As the CPI is sort of leveled off, we've seen that mm. the U.S. dollar get, get stronger. And for that, I kind of stay away from emerging market stocks. Right, because they'll get clobbered if interest rates keep going up. U.S. rates. Exactly. Michelle Gerard, um, uh, to Mike's point, the uh, GDP tracker from the Atlanta Fed's gone from 2.6 to 1.4. Now they're going to revise it, obviously, when we get the new numbers in from the rest of August. Mm-hmm. But um, what are you thinking here about the economy? And uh, it was, uh, I mean, we're on the front end of recession or whatever the semantics are. But what's your outlook for for the economy, GDP? And just one um, one uh, appendix to that. Uh, Mike mentioned mortgage rates. I'm just looking here. Thirty year mortgages are back to six eleven. Right. Wow. Uh, right. Housing's in pretty lousy shape. I th- right. I mean. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Start- housing was down sharply even in the second quarter, and it's I mean double digits, and it will continue to, you know, uh, to be a big drag. So, um, so- what's the outlook? Yeah, we well, as I mentioned, we did actually put in a formal uh, recession into our forecast, oh. and um, you know I think we're we're right around one and a half in the third quarter. You know, we had negative obviously quarters in the first of the year, but they really weren't reflective of where the economy was. There mm. were some you know special factors with inventories and trade and um, consumer spending was still positive. If you you know if you x out some of those categories, if you look at kind of domestic demand, although we did have some weak investment numbers in the second quarter. But in general, I think that the negative GDP numbers didn't really reflect where the economy was. And even now, I mean, we'll get retail sales this week. Uh, I think actually it's going to show that that the consumer is still sort of holding in. Some of the anecdotal reports on back-to-school shopping have Mm. been – have been, you know, holding up. I mean, they're not necessarily strong, but they're but they're holding up. Um, and so, so we have a one and a half percent gain in the third quarter, and then it turns negative and 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 fundamentally negative. Where you start to see in the fourth quarter, we've got growth down. I think it's one and a half percent, but mm. we've got declines kind of across the board: consumer spending, investment, housing. You know, now you're actually seeing the start. I think of what is really you know the recession, and we've got negative growth continuing into the first half of next year. It's, you know, it's not easy. Um, you know, it's it's going to be difficult and painful, obviously, but this is the economic cost that, it, you know, it will, that we need to bear in, I think, in order to bring inflation down. I just don't think that the, you know, and the Fed, I think, recognizes this when you talk about their willingness to drive the unemployment rate up. The only way we're going to bring, you know, inflation down is to slow demand. Hopefully, and you mentioned tax cuts. I mean, it would be great to get some fiscal uh, stimulus, um, fiscal action in the form of tax cuts, not spending, that will help increase the supply side of the economy as well. But, you know, um, and in the interim, that what the Fed 
Fed is, I think, more directly able to control the name of the game to bring inflation down is to really get you know demand down, which is effectively to slow the economy down to a point that I think ends up you know leading to recession. Yeah, you know, you're right. Look, these the dopes run in Washington right now are not going to give us any supply side help. Michelle, just one uh, kind of a quirky question, but look at California and about ten other states are banning gas-powered automobiles. I mean, this is an insanity, insanity. But my question to you is, what's that going to do to car sales? Yeah, because the supply to switch isn't there. You know, the problem is at the moment, um, I think they want to do that by 2030. I mean, at the moment, I think electric vehicles account for something like 8% of the cars on the road. I mean, you just can't, you know, you can't find the supply. Um, And so I think that will be, I mean, on some level, I guess you could argue it might spark demand in some areas at the expense of others. But um, I think all of these kinds of policies are you know, are, are incredibly problematic. Um, mm. And and I think that that's going to be something we end up, um, you know, that, that we'll have to see how it plays out. Where I actually thought you were going to is, is just given the environment um, that we're in, you know, this whole e, where ESG comes together with the realities of, of the current situation kind of with Ukraine. I mean, some of the, you know, the, the policies that we've, you know, the government wants to put forward, is clashing with the realities of mm. of the current situation as well, and and so I I, I think you know I, again I think with all of these perhaps well intentioned ideas, the realities of the constraints and the implications of what that actually means in the transition period is is quite tricky. It's it's not tricky. It's catastrophic. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing tricky about it. It's catastrophic. You yeah. know, Mike Ozanian, I got 30 seconds. We're all going to buy EVs, but Gavin Newsom won't let you plug in the battery. You can't recharge well, it because there's no electricity well, in California. Right. I got to get out of here. They don't have the grid. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's the grids. control, Larry. Yeah, contr- Mike Ozanian and Michelle Gerard. Terrific stuff. All right, folks, stick around. We've got Money in Politics coming up with Liz Peak and John Fund. I'm Cudlow. Please stay with us. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Let's do some money in politics. We have Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and John Fund, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline. And uh, John's latest book is Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. Uh, Kids, welcome. Thank you very much. Liz Peek, I want to begin with you because you have to help me. There's a lot of things in life that I do not understand. Here's one of them. We are from California on Gavin Newsom. I think there's a dozen states now. We are going to ban the internal combustion engines, gas-powered automobiles. We're going to ban them. Okay, fine. So now we have this battery economy. The only trouble is we don't have the ingredients – for the batteries, the nickel and the lithium and all this stuff that I don't even understand. And we don't have enough electricity to fuel the batteries because Gavin News said you can't plug in your charger. Okay, so that's, that's what we got on one side. Then I had Paul Dabar on the show earlier. He's a former top scientist for the Energy Department during the Trump years. Very smart guy. Not a political guy. 
And he was telling, saying, you know, Paul, the trouble is the Greenies won't provide permits to mine the resources so we can make these batteries, put the stuff in the batteries. We have to buy it from China, make China rich. And then he told me this. If we did mine for the resources, then the carbon emissions from the mining would exceed the carbon emissions from the automobiles, the gas-powered automobiles. So this is the stupidity. (laughs) There's like three stupid things here. Number one is banning uh, gas cars. Okay. Number two is uh, we're going to have to make China rich because we don't have the uh, uh, mineral resources. But number three, if we had the mineral resources, it would release more carbon emissions than what the automobiles presently release. Now, my ha- to use your phrase, my hair is on fire. Is that what you say? <laughs> I do not understand any of this. So my sort of overall response to this is <laughs> these are not serious people. <laughs> they are people right. checking boxes, uh, that is to say Gavin Newsom, Joe Biden, et cetera, to make themselves popular with people for whom climate risk is more important than anything else on earth. And there is that contingent of people. And we have a small fraction of the population who buys into that. But sadly, the entire population is being subjected to really injurious policies driven by that very small minority, exactly the same as happened in Germany. And look at their situation now. It's horrific. But Larry, to your point, yes, we don't have uh, the, the reason that environmentalists stop the permitting on mining such minerals is, yeah, it's dangerous and harmful to the environment. But since the climate is is a global phenomenon, if it's mined in China, it's equally bad for the global uh, climate as it is if it's mined here. It's just we don't want it in our backyard. But the bigger bigger message is this climate agenda of Joe Biden and secondarily Gavin Newsom is not well thought through. It's not planned out. I mean, look at California now. It is in a ridiculous situation where, yes, you have to have an EV, but, oh, you can't plug it in between four and nine. And I've seen serious people write, well, that's not important because that's not a very busy time of day. What <laughs> if you're picking your kids up at school or you have, a, you have to go to a dinner or whatever? I mean, it, this is the most ridiculous uh, uh, program uh, on earth and and the the multiple steps and mistakes that California has made to get to where they are now and where they're going it, it would I just wrote a piece about it, it took more than a thousand words and I had to kind of leave out some no I read <laughs> your mistakes column. they've made no no I loved your column uh <laughs> Biden White House loves California energy solutions shortages and high cost just as a follow-up for a flip over to John fund um you've if you if you plug in your EV charging battery or whatever, you have to give up air conditioning and refrigerators. Okay, <laughs> air refrigerator. Now there's a heat wave, so you know air conditioning, but you have to give up your refrigerators. Now yeah. that is not good for food, well, and that no, is not and, good for families. I mean, and, and really, we're we're joking about this, but the reality is, if you're if you have an outage, and there were Northern California cities that actually did cut off power to residences over the last week when the temperature was over 100 degrees, people can die under those circumstances, right. Larry. I mean, in England, right. we've had them opening 
cooling centers and heating centers because they know this winter people could freeze to death. These are not these are not sort of problems that that can be just sort of sideswiped. These are serious problems, and California has them in spades, not to mention that low-income people are saddled with electricity that's 80 percent more expensive than the rest of the country. At some point, don't those people stand up and say, no, we refuse to let this happen. No. By the way, good point. We're all focused on gasoline prices, as we should be, but electricity prices are soaring. Yeah. even while gas prices are slipping lower. John Fund, first of all, I'm going to assert there is no climate warming emergency, point number one. Point number two, the problem is climate policy, not uh, global warming. And number three, John, why don't we just go back and let people have cars, internal combustion, let them drive their own damn cars, and if they want to have EVs, let them do that too. Why, why do we have to do all this rigmarole? Larry, you and Liz have forgotten that the liberals have a solution to the problems you just outlined. Yes, you can charge your electric car unless you, you know, char- charge your refrigerator and your and your um, and your air conditioning at home. It's going to be very simple. Uh, your car has well, your electric car will have an air conditioner. You can put a mini fridge in it, and you can live in your car. And it can be, always be charged. You just have to leave your house. <laughs> it's a, honest to God, John. Politically, okay, you're a political expert. This stuff isn't going to fly. I mean, Liz's point: people are going to be furious, aren't Larry, they? The, the, the biggest lesson I've learned in my entire career in journalism is. Watch what politicians and people do, not what they say. People, and politicians especially, say global warming is the metaphysical equivalent of the apocalypse. It's going to hit us. We have to deal with it. But, you know, 1% of people say that global climate change is the most important issue. Right. And when you ask people, okay, you say climate change is important, and I do too. I think we do have to do things about it, new technologies, the kind of things Bjorn Lomborg talks yes. about, yes. to get us out of this mess. But how much are you willing to pay for it? Mm-hmm. The average person in this country is willing to pay between 20 and $70 more to solve the climate change problem. Now, that is not a political constituency that you can depend on to shut down Western civilization. They're going to revolt. They're going to have their hair on fire, as Liz said. Mm-hmm. So, you know, look at, um, I've forgotten his name from the Manhattan Institute. He was on the show last night. Uh, Mark Mills. Thank you, John. So, you know, Liz, Mark Mills says we've spent five. Oh, that's right. I read this first in the um, hotline for the Committee to Unleash Trust Party. Mark Mills says we've spent $5 trillion on subsidies for, uh, you know, green energy, blah, 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 over the last two decades. And we are still, uh, the globe is using fossil, I believe his number was 84% of all the power around the world is still fossil fuels. This is $5 trillion later. It's still fossil fuels. Larry, so what does that tell you? Some, well, of it, some of this is spent out of a nearly religious fervor and conviction that we have to change the way we live. But some of it is a plan by elites 
who want to transfer wealth from your pocket and my pocket and Liz's pocket and the pockets of the people in your audience to their pockets. You're t- I'm talking about Wall Street investors mm. who have decided to bet big on wind and solar and using guilt and the climate issue to transfer resources into an industry that is not fully ready for prime time. We're talking about carbon trading people like Al Gore. Al Gore has made hundreds of millions of dollars trading carbon credits back and forth, which is a shell game. There are elites in this country that are becoming rich and redistributing income for the middle class to them in order to become the new energy elite. Yep. So, Liz, well, and, this and is... I think the problem is that people are lied to about it. I mean, Californians don't hear from the major networks or from the tra- traditional media that the cost that they're paying more for electricity because of policies. But, they think, Liz, well, one of the reasons it's they climate. can't hear that is because their power is out. <laughs> Touche. Uh, but uh, it, you know, I think we're getting to the point. To your Larry's point about five trillion dollars, uh, of course, it has gone slowly. And again, it has been really damaging. Um, I had to laugh this morning. There's an article in the New York Times about cutting down ancient trees because actually the biggest renewable fuel in Europe, I think I read this right, wood. is wood. Yes. And wood. <laughs> I mean, wood. can you imagine? So what is the best thing for the planet? We can all agree the best thing for the planet is trees. They recycle yes. carbon and whatever they do. But I've read a million pieces about it. Trees are good. We're cutting down trees to increase the percent of renewable fuel. When I... When I said early on these are not serious people, this is what I mean. This, this is not serious. And in terms of the EV economics, they're so terrible that the taxpayer has to keep funding the purchase of EVs. What does that tell you? It tells you it's not a competitive product absent the government's heavy hand. So at some point, I, I just really hope – uh, that voters kind of wake up to what's really going on here. Liz, I think John's Liz, point is actually we have the calorie interest. is coming. Yeah, I we hope. We have a template. We have a template for how to get out of this mess. It's to look at whatever Germany has done <laughs> and do the opposite. <laughs> and Liz Truss in Britain, the new prime but, minister. Yes, yes. It, she has. She's ended the fracking ban. The first she thing is, she did. The first, the first thing, thing she did, did was end the fracking ban. That was terrific. She let out new permits for oil and gas exploration in the North Sea. Yep. She is she is subsidizing people's fuel bills for this winter because they're going up over 300% in one year. That's crushing. But she has basically said, we are going to produce energy so we don't have to do this ever again, and we don't have to be dependent on hostile powers like Russia. Yeah. By yeah. the way, Charles better keep his yap shut because he's a climate Marxist. Well, his mother is a climate so Marxist over 70 years on the throne. We still don't know what she thought about any major issue. That's good. Charles, Charles, we know already what he thinks. He should at least have the decency to follow his mother's example. Yes. And the way to be beloved is to be silent. I was going to yeah. say, this guy's got such a long paper trail. He shouldn't open his yap for a long time. Liz, you know, before we take a break. All these things you're describing, we're all describing. This is socialist central planning jammed down the throats of Americans who don't want it. That's what this is all about. You're going to, you know, we're having this uh, unauthorized, this socialist uh, Fox Nation special. You're going to be in it. Um, That's what this is. Socialist central planning. And nobody wants the damn thing. 
And you know what's really a, a hallmark of socialist central planning? To John's point, a lot of – not a lot, but a very few people at the very top making those decisions get very, very rich. No, that's and, right. That's and nobody right. else does. Everyone else gets somewhat poorer, and that's what's going to happen here. All right. We got uh, Liz Peak, Fox News, and um, syndicated columnist John Fund, Committee to Unleash Prosperity. We're going to come back in just a second and talk about how Joe Manchin, who double-crossed the Republicans – is now getting double-crossed by Democrats. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, John Fund, Committee to Unleash Prosperity. So, kids, let's talk about this. a very interesting story. So, Joe Manchin really double-crossed the Republicans at the last minute and uh, threw in with this stupid inflation reduction bill, which is really an inflation-increasing bill. But now the interesting thing is, and this is where I want your comments, he was promised a vote to improve permitting, uh, presumably permitting for um, fossil fuels as as well as other things, um, roads, bridges, and highways. But it turns out that um, Bernie Sanders and others have been organizing about 60 Democratic votes in the House to vote against a permitting bill, whether it's, I don't know, standalone or in the continuing resolution. So Manchin double-crossed the GOP. Now the Democrats are double-crossing Joe Manchin. And let me just add to that, uh, as I set the table here, I didn't even know this. Uh, Joni Ernst, Senator Ernst, was on the TV show and reminded me that Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, Senator Capito, has a much better permitting bill without all the regulations and all the spending that the Democratic bill Manchin signed on to has. So there's a Republican revolt inside that. So now you've almost got like a double, double cross going on. So, John Fund, I'm going to start with you on this. What do you make of this? For Joe Manchin to believe that Chuck Schumer was going to deliver his fellow Democrats for a permitting bill and go against the environmental lobby is just preposterous. Talk about being taken in. Mm. Didn't he notice that when Chuck Schumer made that promise, he was wearing a T-shirt that had Lucy from the Charlie Brown cartoon <laughs> and a football, and his, and, his, and his face was superimposed on that of Charlie Brown? Didn't he notice that? <laughs> yeah. So, Yimbo, but Liz, in a, in a very serious way, I, and we're going to get Senator Capito on the show this coming week. To uh, I didn't even know this, but she's got a bill that's a much better bill that it basically uh, goes back to the Trump permitting rules inside of two years, you know, in one federal decision and so forth uh, without all the um, highly restrictive environmental things that the Biden White House has put on. And Republicans are going to vote against this permitting bill, even though one would think, but they're not. They have no love for Joe Manchin anymore. They're furious at him for double crossing him. They've got a better bill, and then the liberal Democrats uh, are going to vote against it because they don't want any permitting for anything. I, but I think John's right. I, I don't think Joe Manchin is that stupid. It's impossible to imagine that he was taken in on this. I think somehow he just caved, and I think the pressure on him to go along with the big spending bill, and to his credit, it was not as big as it might have been originally, 
But I think it just became intolerable uh, because, I, I mean, I didn't think there was ever going to be a permitting bill. Did you, Larry? I mean, did, did you really think Chuck Schumer was going to be able to bat down these noisy, uh, extreme left-wing members of his own party? I don't think so. And by the way, I think occasionally we should applaud the fact that Donald Trump made this permitting issue uh, a yeah. priority because the American people are really about uh, on are they're so supportive of this they know that the entanglements of our bureaucracy are insufferable and that we can't move anything forward i hope and if i have chance i'll do it in the next couple of months we should look at what's happened to the 1.1 trillion dollar infrastructure bill how much has been paid out uh, to date how many projects Very are actually little. getting off the ground of course not because they can't because every time you want to move a stone 16 tribal authorities local officials mm-hmm. environmental groups lie down on railroad tracks and say yet and that-, that is a huge huge problem for our country so kudos for having gotten this into the uh, national conversation in the trump era and kudos for capito if in fact there is a bill that maybe people could get behind, but but the Democrats aren't going to do it. They're yeah, just not going you know, to I'm very proud of it. this. The permitting stuff came out of the uh, NEC, National Economic Council, um, Andrew Ullman, Francis Brook, myself, many others. We worked with the agencies. We got it through. The president was, you know, riding honcho on this the whole time. But, you know, your point is right here, Liz. The infrastructure stuff, this is not just about fossil fuels. Yeah. The, because Biden's repealed the – they scrapped Trump's executive order. So the um, White House Council on Air, on Air Quality and the EPA are now preventing bridges, roads, highways, tunnels, you know – Grids, all the stuff that they thought they were going to get, they can't get because they got rid of the permitting rules. And look at Liz, I will tell you this. Uh, I don't I can't give Joe Manchin. He's a friend of mine or was. um, I was shocked when he threw in with Schumer because his main reason he called me. I talked to to Manchin. okay, and he said it's the permitting. We're going to get a permitting bill. And I never believed it. And therefore, I felt he was just incredibly naive to begin with. Never should have done what he did. We never should have had that bill. And furthermore, his poll. Now, John, fun to you. I don't know if you mansions polls in West Virginia have collapsed, collapsed. Okay, the the governor who probably run against him for the Senate is like got a 25 point lead right now in the polls. Wow. The former attorney general of West Virginia, who lost to Manchin by three points last time, is now 14 points ahead. What's his name, John? Pat Morrissey. Yeah, that's the guy I mean. But the governor Uh, might run against him, too. Well, the governor's getting up there in years, just like Joe Manchin is. I think what this decision by Manchin indicates is he's never running for office again in West Virginia. Yeah, that's right. That's That's effectively, this is his retirement announcement. That's why uh, he, God only knows you know, what uh, he was promised. I do know this. Last year, when they needed Manchin's vote for one of the stimulus bills, lo and behold, his wife was appointed chair of the Appalachian Uh Development Commission. One of the cushiest no-show jobs in Washington. Yeah, it's a million dollars a year for the Appalachian Commission. You're quite right. Uh, That was for the um, 
uh, uh, March 2021 American Relief Bill, the $2 trillion bill. No, you're right. Um, I work with Joe for six months. I give him a lot of credit for stopping uh, the big tax hikes. And, I mean, Liz is right to some extent. This bill is smaller than the original bill back better. But, I, I know I can't, I can't excuse it. I'm sorry. I can't excuse it. No, I don't excuse it at all. I think it's a travesty, but I'm just saying there must have been. And by the way, this thing with his wife is, is real. I mean, there is, she does have that appointment, and that supposedly was sort of a payback. Who knows, right? But if, he's, if, if your guys are right and he's going to be no longer uh, in public office, maybe that was a good trade-off in his mind. I, I think it's tragic, honestly. Well, I think that you're going to get a Republican senator from West yeah, Virginia. That That's what good. I think. John yeah. Fund. 30 seconds. The cavalry's coming. Mitch McConnell's wrong. These guys are going to they're looking pretty good, all these Trump candidates. Give me 30 seconds, John. The campaign begins after Labor Day. Before then, voters are inattentive and you're surveying registered voters, not likely voters. Right. As you, when you register likely voters, you get higher Republican numbers. All right. John Fund and Liz Peake, thanks ever so much. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will see you again next weekend.